This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You're listening to the Hunt and Land Man podcast. This is Slade Priest, your host, the Hunt and Land Man. Rack buck down here on opening day. If you're interested in rack bucks and real estate and everything that has to do with hunting property, this is the podcast for you. Well, here we go. What is this new Ryan? Episode nine? Episode nine of the Hunt and Land Man podcast brought to you by Southern Ag Credit. Our good friends over at Southern Ag Credit take good care of us. I'm Y'all really don't know how much I'm on the phone and on emailing with this crew and how much business we do with them. They do a great job. There's uh, a lot of good companies out there that finance land, but I promise you I use them the most, and we thank them for being part of the Hunt Land Man podcast. Today we got a special treat. We got Mr. Don Bells on on the podcast here today, and Don is a longtime friend. I've probably known Mr. Don, I'm going to say, over 25 years. Um how old was Cliff when y'all came to Centerville? Oh, 14, 11. Yeah, so probably uh, probably about 25 years. But Don is a Realtree land pro. He works for us over there at Southern States Realty. And Don has kind of been my – you know, Don's kind of to blame probably. If I ask <laughs> my dad, for, he's probably to blame a little bit for uh, my infatuation for deer hunting. So Don uh, was kind of my family's biologist. He was a county agent in Wilkeson County for, I don't know, about 10 years. Yep. And uh, Don, uh, you know, he helped uh, a, a whole lot of my deer education. And some of the things back in the old days you, you look back and laugh at now. I remember in 1996, uh, we planted soybeans. You probably remember that year in the Devil's Backbone, one of our food mm-hmm. plots at our place. And there was 16 rack bucks in that field. My dad filmed that, uh, that uh, afternoon. And in southwest Mississippi at that time, that was like unbelievable record-breaking exactly. yeah it, it was like nothing we had ever seen and looking back now we, we you know we can do that on a lot of these places but back then to have it on video and have proof because trail cameras weren't even hardly a thing back then i mean there were some here and there mm-hmm. yeah i remember the early days when we first started doing the trail camera census mm-hmm. we had to take the film to the drugstore 
get it developed, and analyze the photographs that way. Well, uh, so Don, uh, he lives over in the Hattiesburg area. Don, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about your history that uh, maybe I won't be able to repeat good, but you uh, just where your dear education and kind of give us a little bit about yourself. Okay, I, I grew up in Picayune, Mississippi, went to Pearl River Junior College, played football there, and then I was off to Mississippi State. I always had an interest in wildlife and things related to it, and I started doing taxidermy work at the age of 12 years old. And eventually I worked my way through college doing taxidermy work. Got a degree in forestry with the wildlife option. Uh, eventually over the years got my certified wildlife biologist credentials, uh, registered forester, of course. And uh, just been in that field my entire career. I actually, I really love land. I love the wildlife. I love working with the people, helping them achieve their objectives. You mentioned in Wilkinson County as a county agent, I think I was the only one that was a DMAP biologist, of course. Great place to be a biologist, too. So at one time, I had over 30 clubs that I consulted with. We had the doe tags back then and all that. So it's just been my career to help people with land and with wildlife management. I love it, and I'm going to do it until the day I can't do it anymore. And uh, something I like about Don, look, Don is a, you know, we, we consult back and forth on a lot of things and talk about deer, and we can literally sit and talk about deer all day, every day, elk and turkeys and everything. Something that I think Don is different from a biologist standpoint is a lot of deer biologists hunt, but Don is super passionate about it. You know, he loves it. Uh, you know, he, he spends every hour when he's not with his family or going to church. He, you know, he spends in the woods doing something like that when he can. And, you know, I, I just don't meet a whole lot of biologists that have that kind of passion. Don is a huge bow hunter, a uh, huge uh, recurve and longbow hunter. Was it a recurve or a longbow you killed the big deer in Centerville with? It was, it was a recurve. Mm-hmm. I killed several nice ones with a recurve and... Just that, that's a passion. Right, I mean, if right. it gives you a rush to shoot a deer with a bow as opposed to a high-powered rifle, back on down to a 15- to 18-yard weapon and look them in the eye, it's it's a special rush. It, it really is, and I have not I, – I took one hunting a couple of times after I tagged out in some places, but I've never uh, never been successful. But it really is – it. everybody who does it, they, it's just you have a new – you've got to be able to willing to walk away without a kill a lot of times, but it's a it's a lot – it's a different sport for sure. Right. You do skin a lot less deer if you hunt with traditional gear. So if you don't like skinning deer, maybe it's <laughs> – That's a good way to go, yeah. That's right. That's right. Mm. Well, uh, Don actually grew up well, – when he lived in Wilson County, he lived – in the Whitaker, I guess you'd call it area, which is where my house is, probably I don't know five miles, six miles from where my house is. So we know a lot about that land, those landowners, and about that area. So we are always talking, and we were looking at maps earlier. Something we want to do on the podcast today, you know, we get off on all kinds of tangents on this thing, is we want to talk about time of the year, you know, um, and and what's going on. Uh, it's actually raining outside right now in the south. It is the middle of May, and uh, if you haven't already. You know, it's it's t- turkey season's over in the south. It's time to start thinking about next year's deer season, what you're doing for your deer now, because what you're doing for your deer now is going to significantly affect, you know, their horn growth and, and, and the deer that are on your place now. So if you're going to do any timber or habitat improvement or if you're going to do any uh, summer food plots or supplemental feed, mineral stations, 
water stations, you name it. You know, you got to be thinking about that stuff now. So uh, let's just take, for instance, my my home place. It's kind of my testing grounds. I've had a real fun with it and probably go way over and above. I've got protein feed out. Um, my clover is just kind of, I just had a crimson clover, so it's all about gone now. And you can see in the deer activity, it's something really cool to have that big field in my front yard because I see what the deer are doing every day. You know, it's okay. They're, I remember when that stuff was just budding out right after the ryegrass and the clo- and the wheat was um, kind of tasseling out and that crimson was coming up those deer. You could see it. I mean, there was significant about more deer activity when you pulled in the driveway in the afternoon and now it's tapered off. So you kind of, it's cool to be able to see it in, in, in front of your front eyes every day in front of your house. But uh, Don, um, Tell me this, from your standpoint, if we're middle of May, is it time to be planting summer food plots now? Are we late? Are we early? Or you need to be getting on it now? You tell me. Well, it, it, it relates somewhat to ground temperatures, mm-hmm. uh, and it depends on what you're planting. Some of the things like, for instance, Alley's clover, you need to wait a little bit later, up in between now and June 15th. Have you heard about Alley's clover this year? I, I hate to interrupt you, but no. I talked to the co-op the other day, and somewhere where they get the seed, uh, I think it's in Florida or somewhere like that. They had a bad something happened to it last year, and you can't hardly buy Alley's clover this year. Now that's from one co-op I talked to. Yeah, I hadn't, hadn't heard that. Mm-hmm. Hadn't heard that. Go but ahead. The, the point being made is that you, you need to consider the, the, the species of the forage that you're planting, and whether the ground's right yet or not. The ground temperature's right, and then of course you got. And, and let's talk about actually planting it. I used to do talks, and I used to emphasize this every single time. What you plant is not nearly as important as how you plant it. You've got to have a good, firm, smooth seed bed. You don't need just a bunch of big old clots out there. Rough it up and, and just go out there and throw some seed that comes with a fancy bag and think that's going to do the trick for you. Uh, soil testing is important. As a former county agent, we always emphasize that. Uh, if the forage that you're planting needs a pH up around 6 and you're going to go out there on a pH of 4.3 and plant whatever it is, you're, you're going to fail at it. Everything else is not going to matter how well you do it. You've got to get the pH up to match that particular forage's minimum requirements. What what are most summer food plots? I know like 7's neutral. What what are What's kind of a uh, – I, I know from experience in, in most places, you know, with pines uh, – with pine straw and leaves most things are down in the fours in our area what what's kind of a bare if you're going to plant a soybean or a cow pea or an alley's clover what's kind of a bare minimum that you need i I would shoot for 6.0 if i could get it six between six and 6.5 if you get down in the high fours you're wasting your time uh some things in our winter forages our cool season stuff you can get by with a little bit less you can get by with low fives but Always try to get it at least in the high fives and somewhere around 6.0 to 6.5 if you can get it. Uh, it. It is well worth the time and money spent to put the lime out because it just enriches it. It it helps the soil chemistry. The uptake of the elemental plant needs is better when the pH is balanced. And you're just fighting a losing battle to plant on a poor seed bed in a hurry and not having planned it all out well. And I know a lot of these things, Don. I'm going to ed- re-educate myself, but really educate our viewers. Okay, what happens if I 
if I go out there and plant tomorrow, is my plants not going to grow as good? Is they're not going to have the protein? What happens if I don't do that? We're just trying to emphasize the importance. Okay. The, the, you know what came to mind is I used to have some slides that I presented talks about food plots with. They were taken from Tatum. There was a place where the pH was about 4.8, and there was another place where the pH was up around 6. And I had photographs aimed down into the forage, and you could see bare ground in the one that had the lowest pH. The one with the correct pH was lush and green with clover and wheat and oats mixed, whatever we had there. It was a cool season forage. Mm-hmm. But I distinctly remember that the plant, plant population is lower. It's going to grow slower. And proteins related to nitrogen content, if you can't pick up the nitrogen, if the soil chemistry is not right, or you have to supply it with a nitrogen fertilizer. So a lot of reason to have your pH. And where I'm fixing to plant my big summer food pot's brand new ground. Uh, it's part of my things I've got to do in the next two weeks is, is get some soil samples. I know I'm going to have to put some lime. I guess the question is usually, is it going to be two tons or three or four, whatever right. it is. Um, so... I know this, but Don, you know, I know that if you if you put your put your lime out tomorrow, yes, it really doesn't go into full effect. What sixty or ninety days, but it starts helping immediately. But but it doesn't go into full effect uh, for a while. Is that correct? Correct. Let's back up and talk about soil sampling just a minute. You don't know how many times I had as a county agent. I get a box, and I can tell that it's a piece of a part of a shovel. Mm-hmm. They went out in one spot in the field and stuck a shovel in the ground and filled a soil sample box up and brought it in. All right, that'd be like going in a school elementary classroom and measuring one child in there and saying the average child in here is four feet tall. Right, right. You didn't you didn't sample the entire thing. So what you have to do is, and it's pretty easy to do. There's soil probes to do it. You can get one from the county extension office, or they sell them every day. You just go in maybe 20 spots around in the field. Zigzag your way across it, low spots, high spots. Uh, don't discriminate about where you put the soil probe in the ground. Put it in a bucket, mix it all up, put it in a box. If you're going to plant 20 food plots, if they're similar in nature, you don't need to pay for 20 soil samples unless you've got 20 really big fields. And then it's worth the investment. But if you're planting 20 food plots on a typical hunting lease or property, you can go out and get four, five, or six cores from field one, field two, field three, and mix them up. Because odds are, when you bring your planting equipment in there, and if it's for cool season forages for the winter that you're going to plant in maybe September, you're you're probably going to have the seed mixed up, and you're going to drive the buggy from plot to plot. So. And you're not going to be able to get it so specific with the lime or the fertilizer. It's going to be a, let's see how average. we did. Yeah, it's going to be an average anyway. Yeah, we're going to do an average thing. And we're going. To, I used to do that at a property that I managed, and I had 20-something food plots, and I averaged them out. We brought the buggy in, and we knew we had 300 pounds of fertilizer. And we, the application rate was pretty much the same across the spectrum of all the different plots. And uh, for everybody, uh, Melissa just stepped in. For everybody watching, we are filming our first uh, podcast and we're recording our first podcast in my office here at Southern States Realty. It just uh, felt like we needed to do that over here today. We've got a new camera we're filming with, so we got all kinds of new stuff. But I really like where we're heading because 
as much as I've heard Don and other people talk about this stuff, it's always Don's an expert on this stuff and has done a lot of research. And it's good to, you know, to reiterate some of these things. New Ryan, you learned anything over there about lime your food plots? And none of us do a good enough job. And it does cost money. But Don, answer me this. And I've asked this question before, but for our viewers, okay, yeah, I spent an extra $500 on lime this year. Name your price. In the fall, it pays itself back. Is that not correct? Or, or whenever you plant. Correct. And let me <clears throat> tell you about something that we did. On a landowner, and I won't call the name, they had been putting out 300 pounds of triple 13 on all their food plots every year, 20-something acres worth. I said, let's soil test it. Let's see where we are. You may not need to put the P and the K. You may not need to do that. That's phosphorus and potash or K2O. Especially but, if you've been doing it that long, huh? Right. If you've been doing it that long, you the, the, the deer are eating it, and they're coming and going. It's not like a corn crop or a soybean crop that you're harvesting it and hauling it off the site. So you're building up those nutrient levels in the soil. And if the pH is good. So we sampled all that stuff. And we were able to fine-tune the fertilizer program. We saved him, I think, something like $3,000. On those wow. food plots in one year, that, that's pretty significant. He had he had been liming well. He had been putting a lot of fertilizer out, and all he was doing every year was putting extra fertilizer out there. We saved him a ton of money. Just about 30 acres Just by putting a line. Well, just by testing. Yeah, we, we backed down on the fertilizer. Some in, in some cases, it was almost no P or K fertilizer, just nitrogen. Wow, wow. Um, I know Don and every biologist and everybody that, that spends time doing food plots, you know, clovers are such a big part of the food plot equation, especially in the perennial game. And if, if, if and Don, I want you to correct me where I'm wrong, but in my experience, you know, if everybody, you know, usually if they buy the fancy bag, it's got some perennial clovers in it. And if you're doing it every year, you're getting a lot of, a lot of, uh, Ladino clovers out there. And it seems like the plots that you didn't take care of, you know, all of them, you know, in February and early, early in March, oh, man, my clover's looking good. And all of a sudden, boom, it's gone. And in my experience, it seems to be that those plots that you didn't do your soil samples and you didn't do your lime, it goes a lot faster. Like there's almost no chance of carrying that that clover into July, August, as opposed to a plot that you did lime and take care of it am i wrong there i know there's spraying a lot has to do with that but does that lime help that help that clover be a nutrient a better plant better root system to last uh more drought tolerant i guess right again when everything is right the plant grows to its maximum genetic potential it's going to have a deeper healthier root system so it's going to withstand drought better uh, again, a lot of the cool season forages do begin to wane as it gets hotter and hotter. It's for when clovers come. You know, the crimson clovers first to die off. Then you've got white clovers, ladinos, and several others. They're, they last longer. And then the, the, the red cl- clovers will last even a little bit longer than that. In some cases, in a wet summer, you may still have a pretty good-looking field of red clover in July, mm-hmm. all the way up into late July, actually. just depends on how much rainfall you're getting. Right, right. And there's, you know, there's so many factors uh, when you talk about trying to make a clover plot last. And, and look, you can do it. You know, I mean, there's always a cocoa grass or a or a, uh, a army worm issue and thing, and deer, you know, deer pressure and things like that. But man, if you can get a 
uh, a clover food plot the last five or seven years and treat it right. There's nothing prettier, and there's nothing that deer and turkeys like better. It's like it's a, uh, it's kind of like when you walk onto that Centerville Academy football field and everything's just right. You just kind of want to run and go catch a pass. It seems like deer like they like it out there. It's clean. It, I don't know. It's I guess it's cool to lay down in. Not only is good to eat, but they just like. And, and you see it across the country. I'll never forget when I hunted in Pike County, Illinois, on a bunch of ground up there. They had some really pretty pretty food plots and it didn't matter if we were up there during turkey season deer season if you pulled in those clover fields and look they had corn and soybeans everywhere but if you pulled in those clover fields there was just deer there if they were laying down or hanging out they just something about it they like them mm-hmm. well um all right don so we we've we've covered a little bit of the line what should be doing right now all right let's let's take a, a another step okay what about m- minerals um are you a big minerals fan, or, or should we put should we be putting out minerals right now? Should we already have them out? Should we refresh in our mineral sites? Just speak on that a little bit. Okay, let's back up and look at some of the research that's been done in the past, and at a population level, it's never been proven that any particular hunter or group of hunters putting out minerals is going to make a real significant difference. Yeah, individual deer can benefit. I understand all that. It may attract them. You can get more pictures. I'm not denying any of that, but I'm just saying if you had 10,000 acres and you had the deer data and you looked at the average body weights and main beam length of your three-and-a-half and older harvested, if you looked at every set of data you had for 10 years and then started using minerals and looked at it 10 years later, there's never been any research yet that, that I'm aware of. I don't read the literature every day, but it's never been proven that that mineral content works. All right, now I just kind of set from, you up for that because I knew that's yeah, what you were going to say. <laughs> right. Uh, if you go from, uh, that's why we have bigger, better deer in the areas where the soil is rich. It all goes back to the dirt. It always goes back to the soil, what's in it, and the how available are those nutrients. pH. You can have a lot of potassium in the soil, but if the pH is not right, your plant can't get it out. I used to have a chart in the slide presentation that I did, and it showed the availability of phosphorus and potassium and some of the other nutrients too, calcium and others. How available is that for plants to pick up? And you can see those things slide down. When the pH starts going down, you will see that the availability of those nutrients drop. So when you put lime out there, your your basic P and K, it's going to be more uptakeable by the plant community. And that's what happens naturally in places where the soil is naturally six or more pH. There's areas where the soil is too alkaline. You have to do something about that. But we don't have that problem mm-hmm. around here, and in most places we don't. A lot of people don't understand that in, in a place where the soil is really, really good in the delta, they don't even have a fertilizer input. The legume, the soybean is a legume like a clover. They don't need nitrogen because they make it themselves from the nodules on the roots. So... If we're going to plant something that needs nitrogen, a lot of our cold season forages, when you mix clover in with it, the deer are biting the clover off, and every time those those leaves are bitten off, those nodules respond to, to fix more nitrogen for the plant to uptake. And it, it's a crazy system. God was a genius, and everybody knows he's a genius. I know that. He designed every bit of this stuff, and it works the way it works. It just does. Don, Don, brought up something early earlier in what he was talking about you know and and i say it all the time 
a deer is no better than the soil he's standing on for the most part, you know, and, and we, and Don also said in that we, you know, we manage deer for populations, not individual deer. Now there's individual deer all throughout, you know, the, I think about it all the time. There was a big deer killed a couple of years ago, a 200 inch deer killed in Walthall County. You know, but if you think you can go to Walthall County next year and kill a bunch of 200 inch deer, you're probably, probably not going to be the case. You know, so we look at, we we really look at the median, you know, what if we're, you know, in the average area, a five-year-old deer is going to be 120 or 140, you know, that's what we're looking for. We're managing deer for populations, but, um, it's a deer and it was, I tell you, I talked about this in another podcast and you'll like this, Don. I was, we get stuck at Disney World here this year and I drove from Disney World all the way up to here and a lot of the same species of trees grow from here all the way to Disney World. I talked about water oak and a couple of different pine trees. And, and if you see them down there in that soil versus one that grows in Wilkeson County in a river soil, you know, closer to the river, it almost looks like a different tree. And, and, and you know, if you think about, it, okay, well, well, the deer's the same way. You know, if he's standing in um, Wilkeson County or he's standing in Pearl River County, you know, the, the average deer, he's going to have a bigger body weight. And that's no different if he's standing in Iowa, well, higher north in, in the range. But, you know, if he's standing in Iowa versus standing down here. But so so our trees are going to grow better. Our, our plants are going to grow better. And our deer is going to grow better where they're standing on better soil. Am, am I wrong? Yeah. Yeah. If you get far enough south, then the temperature things, the, the variations genetically within the species, for instance, the Everglades deer, totally different rut, totally different body sizes. It just makes a lot of sense for an animal that lives where it's hot not to be real big, right. not to be real thick. Mm-hmm. And there's a rule in biology, I think it's called Bergman's rule, that mammals are bigger in the more northern part of their range. White-tailed deer in northern Wisconsin are bigger than deer in north Louisiana. Right. Uh, you know, assuming all other things with soil fertility being equal, they are just bigger because they need to be bigger to mm-hmm. conserve heat. To yeah, survive. I think you taught me that. The farther you go north in a deer's range, the historically the bigger they get. Mm-hmm. Correct. And of course, there's you know there, yeah, like like we said, there there's you know you can take an individual deer in Wilkeson County and he may weigh three hundred pounds, but that's not normal. You know, that's not that's not something we see all day every day. Um, all right, we talked about minerals, and as y'all heard it, you know, uh, there's no proven research. Now, it's fun to have a mineral stuff, and in August, stick a camera on there and have every buck come to it. That's fun, and and, and I actually went to a little deer school one time, Don, in, um, at the Sanctuary, historic Perina Proven Grounds, one of the oldest high fences in the country, and, and, and they had a bunch of biologists, and basically they were trying to sell us Perina feed, and they said... It's not been proven that if the deer are eating the Perina feed that they need minerals. That's what that's what they were saying. Uh, no, and 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 to your point, I guess it would be it's not been proven that they need it if they're eating any good forage. Um, but anyway, uh, all right. So we talked about we talked about uh, we talked about summer food plots. We talked about. Um, we talked about minerals. What about supplemental feeding, Don? You know, I mean, there's a couple of different conversations to have about that topic let's just talk about deer let's say we know that we need to be doing all things well you know we don't need to rely on one but if you are um if you've got some summer food plots if it's clover or beans or whatever you're doing um what do you think about the supplemental feeding all right let's go back to basic biology and talk about the whole spectrum of what deer need Mm -hmm. all right 
as a trained wildlife biologist, our, our first response to that kind of question is supply everything you can naturally by habitat management. We were taught diversity is the key to good wildlife habitat. You don't want a monotype of nothing but all the same type of plants everywhere. You need certain kind of plants that flourish this time of year. That's why mixes for food plots are good. Their supplemental feeding does have a place, but I've seen people, especially within high fences, try to rely too much on supplemental feeding and carry a level of deer that they could not possibly carry. The deer eat up all the forage, and you can see underneath it like somebody went and cut down every mm-hmm. leaf, everything is gone. And and even in non-fence places, I've seen you know this you know the the same the same thing of uh you know just so many deer. You know, I, there's some places in Missouri I've been like that. But go ahead, right. Uh, then the other thing about protein, you know, deer are going to get bigger, healthier, and if they've got a high protein intake from natural forages, it's probably going to be because they've got a good mineral balance in the soil, and they're picking up that too. So they're going to be getting everything they need, all right? But as deer numbers grow, they get less and less opportunity to eat the, the highest quality plants. So population management comes in with helping your deer have everything they need at the right levels so that they all get a good share of the good stuff that's out there. All right, where supplemental feeding comes in is, let's just say that you're carrying a level of deer that you're dependent on your summer food plots to support that population's food needs, and they eat about three pounds of dry matter a day for every 100 pounds. So if you look at what they need and you say, golly, it's a drought, you may want to boost your summer uh, supplemental mm-hmm. feeding a little bit. And I've had a lot of people tell me that their feeders, they can tell when something's really good going on in the spring, they see the supplemental food use back off. All right, let's let's go into cost. All right, how much does a pound of protein supplied to your deer herd cost you opposed to what it would cost you to grow it or even to manage for it? In some good, well-managed stands, you can grow four or 500 pounds of really high-quality forage. In some cases, you can grow... Oh, and he food. means stands of timber or stands, things yeah, like that, yeah, right? Yeah, st- stands of timber. Uh, within that native habitat, you, in other words, you may can have a five-acre food plot, but 100 acres of really well-managed timberland can support the same amount of deer as what you're supporting with no habitat and five acres of food plot. I used to do all these calculations. I'd sit for hours and, and calculate... And we did that one time because I convinced your dad that he was planting too much. I mean, he was planting so much stuff, he was spending more money than he needed to because there wasn't enough deer out there to eat it all. Right. I remember Don and I, in my teenage years, we would go up to the pecan orchard. Uh, you know where that is, New Run. We'd go up there, and it was it was old home site, so it was more uh, it was more privet hedge up there for whatever reason because it was old home site, and we would look at – you know, they're feeding here, and, and, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Don, I think I'm repeating you when I say this, a fertilized soybean, I mean, excuse me, a fertilized privet hedge bush, you know, not too tall or whatever, like a, a lush field of, of mm-hmm. privet hedge, if you will, fertilized, is as good for a deer as a fertilized soybean, if I, am I not right? All right. I will never forget the day that your dad and I drove into a food plot, I can't remember the name of it. Airstrip. Now, northeast part of the property, not too far from the fence. Uh, it wasn't a moccasin, but it was close to it, somewhere up there. Anyway, we drive in there, and he's wanting to show me how beautiful the soybeans are. 
We drive into that field, and there's a velvet buck on his hind legs eating privet hedge, which proves they like variety. Mm-hmm. Even with soybeans, he'd had his fill of soybeans, so he was over there standing on his hind legs getting the best of the privet hedge. I used to test those things. I'd send it to the forage lab, and I got 18 20% crude protein in privet hedge. I'm not advocating everybody go plant privet hedge. It's an right. invasive it is a big problem in a lot of our bottomland hardwood forest in southwest Mississippi. I'm not advocating that. But where you have it, there was a guy that I used to give advice to. He had a, a tractor with the big sidearm mower thing to where you cut fence rows and stuff. So we start going and looking at the property, and I keep pointing out how these privet hedges are, are, are cut back. Everywhere he was cutting them down, I could tell where they were coming up. I can remember one on Whitaker Road. There's a privet hedge in the fence. It never got any taller than the tallest barbed wire because there was so many deer keeping mm-hmm. it. We call it keeping it broomed back or like a bonsai. Bonsai effect. Yeah. yeah. All right. So any privet hedge out there, and I, I used to could go on properties in Wilkinson County, and I could give you a pretty good idea of the relative deer population by how, how hard they were hitting that privet hedge. That means there was a lot of quality forages out there that had already eaten up, and it is itself a high-quality forage. And the more pressure they put on that, the more deer I knew were there. And and if you've ever done this, bow hunters, and I've seen it, and I Don, I know you've seen it, you go out and you're getting in two weeks before bow season, you're trimming up, or a week before bow season, you're trimming up a couple of limbs or whatever, and you throw it all on the ground. You come back to check your stand, and what are the deer eating? They're eating all that fresh privet hedge that was up high and they couldn't get to that you just cut down. They're wearing it out. Or, or any other thing. And mm-hmm. some of your people listening or watching this are going to be surprised when I say this. In a recent test done at Mississippi State, which was a very crude experiment. And by the way, the Mississippi State uh, deer podcast the lab stuff they do mm-hmm. at the msu deer labs phenomenal but they put some different things out in the deer pens poison ivy was one of the things that was the most favored in that group all right in the in the mississippi delta if you see a big old dead tree and it's got covered with poison ivy if a storm blew that thing down you can go cut down one of those trees full of poison ivy and put a stand on it because deer are coming to it they will demolish it Wow, it's, it's not allergic to them. It's allergic to us. It's something turkey I, eat the berries. You uh, you told me about, uh, and then I did a little research, and it was an MSU Deer Lab thing. Was the mineral stump, and I don't mean mineral stump in the, I don't mean it in some trace minerals. I mean it in. You, go ahead. I know. I, I, right. I, right. For years, everybody that's been observing in the woods noticed back in the oil exploration days when a skitter come through and wherever they would run over or cut down sweet gums or oaks or anything in a place where the deer didn't have a lot of forage and those things that were cut down started growing back up the deer were hammering those sprouts that were coming back up i can remember one time around roxy mississippi seeing little sweet gum trees five feet tall and it was obvious the deer were riding them things down so they could eat the leaves off the top of them all right so what what uh uh Marcus Lashley, I know his last name's Lashley, I'm thinking it's Marcus, but he's at the University of Florida now. But he did the research, and they call him the mineral stump man now, I think. But it just makes sense. If you've got a tree that will grow up to a three-inch or four-inch diameter, it's got this extensive root system. You cut it down. All, right? that, all that root system is feeding just a few little sprouts. So they are extremely rich in mineral content, which came. that's why they come up with the name the mineral stump. And you can go out, if you don't believe it, go anywhere in your place, 
find any kind of halfway desirable tree, black gum and some others, uh, sassafras, uh, dogwood. We don't want to cut dogwoods down because we almost don't have them anymore. But when you cut those down and just put a camera on it, and you're going to see when it starts growing, those deer are going to hammer it in the sprouts. It's crazy. I, I, do you remember me showing you that in the woods? And I showed New Ryan that in the woods one day. I take some of Don's stuff he taught me, and, and, uh, and I make myself look smart. But uh, I always thought that was, that was real cool, and it just makes sense. All of a sudden, you got a tree cut down, and you got these, and, and he said a three or four inch tree, but think about it if it's an 18 inch tree, because I've seen it in that. Mm-hmm. You know, you go cut down. If you watch, like if you cut down a big tree last year that was in your shooting lane, go look by your stand where there's a bunch of little old bushes this much by it now, you know, and it's six or eight inches tall, and those deer are wearing out because they have an extensive root system. And and it, it's just, it's like you said, God was a great designer. when He he, t- he, he sat out there before the foundation of the world one day, and he said, you know, this is going to really entertain Don and Slade. <laughs> so, uh, but all really, really cool things, and, and it's just... I learned something every that's I learned something every time I talk to Don about about these sort of things and, and you know it kind of makes you want to go do a test site of your own okay let's go mow some privet fertilize it and cut a couple of trees down and put us a bow stand by it it makes you you know makes you want to you know want to test it and we don't none of us do enough of that type of stuff our dear because it's easy to go buy it in a 50 pound sack and and throw it out there and put a camera up but none of us do enough of that type of stuff and we know it works and we all we all need to come back to that some. Well, Don, um, we're going to switch gears a little bit. Talk about because uh, I know we could we could do this for hours. Um, you got your real estate license two years ago now. It's been about three now. Okay. I've been more, most active since I re- actively since I got more active after being fully retired. And uh, what's it been like being a real estate agent? I, I absolutely love it because it's a continuation of what I did before, but now I'm going to get paid for it. That's always good. That's always yeah. good. Well, uh, I can't tell you how many times Scott Lindsay called me and said, I got a client and I'm going to tell him to call you. He's looking at two different tracks. You tell him which one from a deer management standpoint would be his best choice. And, and, and the guy would call me sometimes, sometimes they didn't call, but I would, I would have that input. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know Scott appreciated it. And ever since then, I thought, you know, one day when I grow up, I'm going to be a realtor. So if, if you are looking at a hunting property, Don touched on this before we got on the podcast. If you're looking for a property, you know, if you wanted somebody like me or somebody like Don, I mean, nothing against people that sell houses all day, every day, but that's not, that's, if that's all you do and you don't, and if you're not involved in everything and have the passion for the outdoors, I think if you're going to buy a hunting property, you're going to do yourself a disservice by not having, you may, as a client, you may know a lot of these things, but why not having somebody on your team with the same filter you have, or maybe you don't know all these things, but you daggum need somebody that knows uh, you know, hey, yeah, I know this is cut over now, but it's going to hold a lot of deer. Or this place, man, I, I like it, but the his- history of deer. Or something local knowledge to the fact of, man, I don't care how good a deer you can grow here. The neighbor shoots every two-year-old he walks. All those sort of things. And and and, and let's take the opposite end of the spectrum. If you're, I see, we all try when we look at real estate, we try to look through our own lens. And sometimes you have to take that lens off and figure out, okay, my client may not be interested in shooting four or five-year-old deer with his bow. He may just be interested in shooting deer. And if he's interested in just shooting deer, there's no reason for him to pay extra money to be in an area 
where you you know you can grow 150s every year that you may not need to you may just can be in an area where you can guarantee to see some deer every year you know because that may fit that client's goal so why not if you're looking for property get you an agent that knows that sort of thing and you know Fill them out, look them up, find out if they're if they're hunters like you. You know, it, it always makes it easier and a more fun experience, no matter what we do in life. If you know, if we're if if we're hunting whatever we're hunting, whether it be a product or a piece of land or whatever, with somebody with common interests, you know, you feel like you're you're looking with a friend. So if you call me and and you say, Slade, look, I don't want to look at a piece of hunting property unless. I can let go a three-year-old and he probably won't get shot. Well, there's areas you can do that. Uh, and, and, and you just got to search in the right areas. But, um, all right, Don, so you've enjoyed being a, a real tree land pro and, and, and selling some land thus far. I know a bunch of your clients that you've sold some stuff to and, and had some really good properties. Um, what uh, you we're talking about something at lunch that'll be super exciting. Tell us about what you hope to draw and do this fall in the deer woods. Are you talking about an Iowa tag? Midwest? Yeah. Yeah, I got I got three points. Maybe I'll draw with four. I've been up there. I've never I've never gotten my buck yet. I've come close a lot. How many uh, Iowa tags have you drawn? Three. Same as me. Yeah. I've passed up one forties and regretted it. Uh it ain't gonna happen this time. <laughs> I um see I you know, I, I let me see. I've I've gotten three Iowa tags. I didn't shoot a deer. And then I went in like I was lockdown or something i mean they just disappeared and then i shot a 140 and then i did shoot a 172 the last time i went so it's it was good and the year i killed the 140 i missed a 150 the day before and i never forget and you a lot of y'all watching i know don you've probably seen this episode me and kevin DePines, my producer were sitting in the stand we were sitting in a bow hunting box mine over a soybean field and snowed the third week got the third week of uh november up there and uh Three shooters stepped in the field. Three five-year-old plus deer was in the field. It was 150, 155-inch 10-point, a big, heavy mass, probably 140-inch 9-point, and then the deer I actually killed was a big 22-inch wide 9-point. And Colton's, he's freaking out in the, in the blind. Hey, what are we going to do? What are we, which one are we going to shoot? Which one are we going to shoot? I said, tell you what we're going to do. First one comes in range, we're going to shoot him. And that's what we did. Actually, the 155 pushed the 140 to us, and he got to about 27 yards, and we – we put it through him, but it's a special place up there by in Iowa. Yeah, I'll never forget the first opportunity I had. I got to go to the McAllister Army Ammunition Plant. You've yeah. been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the first time that I, I had ever seen what a whitetail rut really is. Mm-hmm. There was five to eight-year-old bucks. They were running, chasing does all over the place. And it was an Army Ammunition Plant, and it had a lot of human traffic and activity, and they weren't scared of you, so... It offered you the ultimate chance to see how a whitetail deer rut really worked, how it, how it happens. And I was amazed at that. And in order to hunt there, I had to have a traditional bow, and that's what got me hooked on uh, hunting with a recurve bow. Mm-hmm. So I borrowed one, and then later I bought one, and I got I got hooked on it. And I, I used it in Wilkinson County, and I killed a really nice five-year-old buck in Wilkinson County with a recurve, shot him at 12 yards, jumping over a fence, shot him in midair. Uh, I'd love to have a camera over my shoulder to do that because it would it would have been a really really neat hunt for people to see. So I, I got really interested in all that. But to get back to the Midwest and the rut being different from here, that's what spurred a lot of biologists on to try to get people to do proper population management, take the right amount of does, let bucks mature. Let's try to get our rut somewhat as close as we can to that. We still not going to get it that close, but what. 
balance in a population does, over time it'll back the rut days up just a little bit. It'll start happening earlier on average, and then you, you'll just have a whole better hunting experience when you have the sex ratios balanced up and they're after each other more. Okay, question. When you get your herd right and it starts backing it up, I want to put in a caveat to see if if I'm right or wrong. And maybe maybe there's not enough research to actually know. This is my read into that. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. And I'm just old redneck to just learn watching a lot of deer. I think for the most part, it happens in a particular area for the most part at the same time every year. Which, But I think the reason it seems to shorten up when you get your population is... Well, you're not seeing it. You're not seeing it. You know, you're not seeing it later because all those does are getting getting bred during that time. Um, you know, if you talk, and and I'm kind of putting two conversations together. I need to back up a little bit. If you ask anybody in Southwest Mississippi, and and I know because I'm involved in tens of thousands of acres of high fence, low fence, and so I get to really get a big sample. And uh, somebody says, "Well, when is the rut in Southwest Mississippi?" Well, what's your definition of the rut? Um, that's exactly. you know, what's your definition of rut now to me the rut is when peak breeding happens and I consider it in southwest Mississippi Centerville Woodville area December 26th to about January 6th January 10th right in there and that to me is a time when a mature buck will bring a doe in a field and he won't let any other bucks get by her and I've seen that you know in person for a long time now the guy that walks in vines or your local hunting store, he'll say, uh-uh, the rut's January 22nd. I saw seven does behind one buck. Well, you know, what's your definition of the rut? You know, you see what I'm saying? That's the, I think as hunters, mm-hmm. well, with, and you, you see it all over the internet. Well, the moon this and the moon that, and the, this cold weather's going to spark that rut. And I say it sometimes too, mm-hmm. but really, you're just what you're you're seeing more deer, so you're seeing activity of the rut. But I feel like the rut happens same time every year. Thoughts? All right, t- tons of research have verified that with aging fetuses, mm-hmm. the rut happens in in the Midwest about the same time every year. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, let's back up. And it starts there's different when... phases of the rut. There's a difference in when is it the best time to try to shoot a buck mm-hmm. and when's the breeding occur. Let's go with when does the main breeding occur. Uh, the main breeding occurs about the same time every year. There's some biologists, a few of them, that still say the moon affects it a little bit here and there. Uh, some people say uh, you got to think population level and across a whole region, and you got to think about things on a big scale and not, well, I hunted November 3rd through the 7th, and, and I didn't see anything. And then the next year, it's really cold on the 3rd through the 7th. Or you got different right. food. Deer in the Midwest got this big, long, thick hair. Just think about it. If it's 65 or 70 degrees and you're sitting out there at 2 o'clock, you're probably not going to see him come by unless you're on a water hole because mm-hmm. he's going to chase does till he can't find one, and then he's going to come drink water or whatever. All right, but if on that same day it's sleeting and the wind's blowing 25 miles an hour and it's 33 degrees, you may be covered up with bucks all day long. So that person that sees that says – Man, that's the peak of the rut in this part of northeast Missouri because mm-hmm. that's when I saw them. It was November the 14th or whatever it right. was. So Which is my favorite day to hunt in the Midwest. They, my favorite day is like 8, 9, 10 November. But mm-hmm. I killed a bunch of them in Kansas during that time. But if you, if you look at weather, and let's just say 
the the deer, the average breeding is supposed to occur up there, say, on the 14th of November, all right? 14th of November is when the average doe was bred, all right? If you look at that in, in the three or four days either side of that, if it was really hot during that time, hunters are not going to see as much. Mm-hmm. They're still going to get bred. They're just going to be doing that Do at, night. at night. And the bucks are going to be walking and doing their thing more at night because it's cool enough. And what causes okay and I, I know I know this from hearing it from you but just for our uh, listeners what causes a doe to go in heat is it the moon is it the weather or is it <laughs> well it, it's just the the basic biological process it, it's time mm-hmm. and and of course it kind of goes to when is the ideal time God put this together when's the ideal time for that fawn to be born and it's kind of backed up to there but a lot of stuff is caused by day length they got things right. that they receive and they get these signals. Uh, yeah, that's what you can ask yourself. Well, how does a duck know when it's time to start going south? The day's getting. Does he have a watch on? When no, the rednecks start on. shooting them up north. <laughs> <laughs> rednecks everywhere, aren't yeah. they? <laughs> yeah. When when you see Mississippi and Louisiana tags all the way up to Canada, you know we got to start flying south. That's I mean, gotta be. <laughs> But uh, all all good stuff, and that's what I was getting at, Don. Is the amount of daylight a doe receives in her eye? You know, a doe receives in her eyes triggers her body into going, you know, mm-hmm. and and going in heat. And uh, and there, let, let me throw something in here. There is some research among other surveys, not necessarily whitetail deer, and it may have been proven in whitetail deer since then. But the presence of a mature male animal, more presence of mature male animals, entices the female breeding cycle to get started. Wow. What other animals did they uh, did they do that research on? That's interesting. Uh, maybe red deer. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly which ones it was, but they were it was captive, and a lot of research has been done captive, and then we've gotten research has gotten more sophisticated and able to gather a lot more data from wild populations with DNA studies. Like a lot of people wouldn't believe that a doe can have a twins fawns sired by two different fathers. It's proven by DNA. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. It just uh, it's so much, and, and and if you're into it like me and Don, there's so many stories we can sit here and tell that I'm having to shut myself up so this podcast isn't four hours long. I mean, you know, talking about that, I, I watched two bucks one day fighting. There was bucks running around late January, you know, last does coming in heat, southwest Mississippi, and I watched a spike go up there and breathe the doe. Now, did one of those other bucks sire the other fawn that the doe maybe had? Maybe so. It, it, it just, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's funny because you, you hear – you know, you hear, well, you know, your three and old and older bucks are going to do most of your reading, and that, and that very well may be the case. But that day, it didn't happen. That old spike, he slipped in there and 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 did the nature thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well, Don, was there anything else? We we're we're, we're getting what well, we're about an hour in. We're getting kind of towards the end of this thing. Um, I definitely want to have you back on. There's so many there's so many ridges we could go down with with this thing and talking about. Uh, you know, Don's a, Don's a huge bow hunter, and, and, and he loves to do it. He kind of, uh, I think, helped start my passion because Don was pretty much, uh, I mean, he'd rifle hunt a little bit, but he was pretty much bow only uh, as I was coming up. And I remember the first day I went to the stand during the rut on my family's place with my bow. My dad told me I was crazy. I was going to see a big buck and not get a shot. And sure enough, I did, and I didn't get a <laughs> shot. And pretty much we all 
pretty much bow hunt only ever since. It just and if you like to shoot a deer at three hundred yards with your gun, more power to you. I just man, if I can get him up there within the tide twenty five yards, there's something special about it. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 it gets you know you get late January in the south and it's cold. It, it, that box stand starts looking really really nice, but uh, ain't nothing wrong with shooting one with a rifle. But if it was my pre, if it was my preference, I wish we uh we just pretty much bow hunt them only. I love it. All right. I, the only way to describe it is is, is I'm hard headed, mm-hmm. and and to me, the more difficult it is, the more enjoyment I'm going to get out of it. I was in a stand with one of my uh, wildlife uh, clubs that I consult with, and we were sitting there watching some deer, and he offered me the gun. It was probably a six-year-old buck, big eight-point, about 128, 30 inches. And he said, you want to shoot him? I said, no, I don't want to shoot him. Mm-hmm. I said, let me come back tomorrow afternoon and hang a lock on. Right, right. And and let me shoot him with a bow down there where he come out. I'm in. But sitting mm-hmm. on a thing watching television, he had a battery in batteries in there watching tv and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. it's just hunting has changed you know? it has it's before and i may have talked about this on the podcast but before the um before the tv show started i actually did very little hardcore buck hunting i would go to the midwest about once or twice a year and i'd go on my big buck hunt and the rest of the year Pretty much the rest of the season, my objective was to shoot as many does as I could with the tags I had. And I had a blast. I mean, like, there was, like, like oh, I didn't shoot 130-inch deer in the south this year. I didn't care. I killed 10 does. I had a blast. I ate good and, you know, had a lot of success, missed a lot. And I tell you what, I was a better, for lack of a better term, I was a better killer back then. When the one walked up there within about 50 yards and I drew back, he because you did it all day. And if you can hit a 90-pound doe in southwest Mississippi, you know, uh, my Uncle Willie, you remember Uncle Willie? He, yeah. Uncle Willie, uh, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he told me when I first started bow hunting, he said, Slade, if you'll shoot about two to three inches under him, you'll kill more than you'll miss. And it, dang, he is 100% right. I had video of one one day sitting in the west end of the suicide plot way up in a tree one morning. I shot her. She was on pins and needles, and I shot this far on her on purpose, and it backstrapped her, and I didn't found I didn't find that doe. I mean, I don't know how far that is a drop, fourteen inches, you know, at, at thirty yards, shooting a, a, probably a three hundred feet per second bow. So it's mm-hmm. a if you can hit if you can hit a a doe, uh, young doe on pins and needles in southwest Mississippi, a big old two hundred forty five pound buck in the Midwest ain't real hard to hit, you know. Right, right. It's a. Uh, it's just fun. It gets me. It gets me fired up. I know we got. I don't. We got a hundred days, hundred and fifty days till bow season. It gets me fired up and ready for it. This inspires me to go ahead and go ahead and get my summer food plots planted, which I told Don during our lunch break. I got my deer right now eating protein. Uh, I'm going to plant my beans here pretty quick now. With the weather, I don't feel too bad because I couldn't hardly do anything right now because it literally ranges three to four inches every week. But as soon as that cycle kind of stops, I'm going to get my beans planted in front of my house. And my beans are going to feed my deer off all summer, but I'm going to have kind of late beans. And it's really about killing some of the deer I know that are coming in there. So uh, I have my clover. I'm going to have very little lax time. I'm going to supplement protein in the middle, and then we're going to have beans. So we're going to have fat, healthy, naturally healthy deer, and hopefully running air through one. As long as New Ryan can hit record and and not lose the footage or nothing, that's a different topic. That's that's going to be on Ryan's exclusive podcast one day. 
Well, Don, thank you for coming out. We're here at Southern States Realty. Hey, if you need anything in the South, biology-wise and land pro-wise, Don can help you. Um, great source for information. You know, he he, you know, he's helping a client look for a big lake property or build build a lake right now. You know, if you want to help set up your property, he's a vast knowledge of uh, setting a property up, and it's one of his passions like it is mine. You know, where we're going to put our food plots, where we're going to put our cutovers, what are we going to do with this timber stand to help with the deer. And it's all fun, and I tell clients that don't know this when they're buying property, that part of the process is just as fun as when you shoot that deer in the food plot. Absolutely. The setting it up, the letting him go, what's he going to be next year. And it doesn't always work out like you want to, but the process is just as fun as the end. Um, I've had so much fun on my own personal places just piddling. In the afternoon, I go get on the tractor and do this or do this or do that. It's just it's just part of the process. Yeah. I really like going on a property that I've never hunted before, read the natural signs, mm-hmm. pick out a spot, and when those deer show up at that spot, there's a real sense of accomplishment in that I figured out where they're going, why they're going there, and maybe guess where they're coming from. It's easier to do that in the Midwest, by the way. You know oh, yeah. that around here the habitat so it's all the same almost it's hard to figure out where they're coming from but there really is no bedding and feeding it's just all bedding right it's all bedding and maybe all feeding too but when you do that you get that great sense of accomplishment that you actually figured out in a natural way where they're coming and going and uh i did kill one deer over corn since Mm -hmm. the law changed I, I may kill another one over corn. I don't know. Well, I'm going to kill another one over corn. <laughs> I know I'm, going, <laughs> I'm going to. Uh, I got uh, two questions. One, one, it spurred a question when you just said that, and then I've got to ask, before I forget, I'm going to ask our question we ask everybody on the podcast. All right, Don, tomorrow, me and you go down here to the uh, truck stop, Kitwood truck stop, and we buy a lottery tickets, and you win $100 million to you. It's $100 million. Where are you buying land and why? I knew you were going to ask that, and I've been thinking about that a lot. Mm-hmm. I just spent almost two weeks up in the Midwest. I have friends in Iowa, and I have friends in northeast Missouri and southeastern Iowa. And I've got the great privilege to go up there and visit and hunt. I was up there. I, I didn't even turkey hunt half the days I was there. I got a big turkey in Iowa. First time I struck out in northeast Missouri. I got sick. A lot of things entered into all that. But uh, I love that part of the country. I really don't know exactly where I would buy it, but it, it would be somewhere in the Midwest. But I think I'd split it. I'd have I'd, I'd spend some of it in the Mississippi Delta. The Mississippi Delta is so strong. It has got the best soils, all that stuff draining out of the Midwest coming right down that Mississippi River. So we got some great opportunities to do some stuff. We got duck hunting. We got deer hunting. It's a, it's a great great place. I would have a big place in Mississippi, and I'd have another one. If I ideally, I would have a spot that straddled the Iowa and the Missouri line. You and Scott Lindsay would be neighbors right there. That's the same thing. I don't know if I'd want Scott as my neighbor. You'd need to come down a couple of miles if you're going to do that. <laughs> What's funny that you mentioned that area. Of course, you know we bought me and Ryan bought our property last year in the area you're talking about, and now our new one. Which to update everybody on the Missouri project, I did not get to go up for the turkey hunt as we thought about on the new and the old place uh ryan and barry cub went up had some success we got the new place bought i still have not even seen it i'm going up at the end of the month to plant corn uh the baby and the closing dates and everything with me our baby's doing good but that did not work out so uh we did not um i didn't get to make it up there so i like some of my clients bought a big nice piece of property i've never seen it 
I'm really trusting my own X and my map reading skills and my knowledge of the area. I hope we made a good decision. Ryan Wascom and my dad both said we did, and my realtor's up there, so hopefully we did. One more question before I let you go, Don. You, I used to ask this question to people, and whenever you said something, it made me think about it. All right, I'm going to give you two 10,000-acre places. I don't care where they are in the state, just anywhere you want to, I mean, in the country, anywhere you want to deer hunt. Let's do this since we're in Mississippi and we're talking about Mississippi. Ten, two 10,000-acre blocks of land in southwest Mississippi. And the reason I use 10,000 acres, we're, we're going to hunt the center. We're really not affected by the outside, the neighbors. I'm going to give you this 10,000 acres right here has been highly managed. People have been planting food plots, putting their lime out, shooting the right does, everything they want to. All right, you can hunt 10 days on this property, or you can hunt 10 days on this 10,000 acres that nobody has stepped foot on deer hunting in the past 20 years. Which one are you picking? I'm going with the managed property. Okay. On why? Well, if it's being well managed, it probably has a, a better sex ratio and age ratio. Uh, it's probably going to have a more balanced uh, timber stands, diversity, uh, you know, every time you clear, clear cut or whatever, not only is there something to do with the sunlight hitting the ground in the cutover, the edge is very important in wildlife management. The more edge you have, the better off you are. So I would really rather go with the well-managed place because that's what I've done my whole mm-hmm. career is manage things. And I've asked that question. I hadn't asked it in a long time. I thought about when you said, un- I would personally, just from a interested, just from, from a, um, I guess, uh, curiosity standpoint i would have to go hunt on the other i would just and it goes back to my deer management days at tatum and places like that because if i went to open you know if i was hunting there 10 days and the first day a big six-year-old six point came by that you know somebody should have been shooting a long time ago i would just get so much interest in shooting that big old joker that nobody's messed with and like you said undisturbed sign and um you know if you've ever hunted a place where where Heck, half the places I hunt, the does walk around looking 30 feet up in a tree. But if you could go hunt somewhere, maybe where that didn't happen, it would just be interesting to me. I guess that's uh, that's why I'd go hunt over there. I watched, I wish, I, actually, I think I did video this one day. It's a place that I hunt very little in Whitaker. Uh, I hunt very little. And I watched this doe walk down through this hardwood bottom one day. And I was way over here, and she was on the other side of the bottom, which I've never had a stand in, and nobody else has in at least 10 years as I've been hunting there. That old heifer was looking 20, 30 feet up in each one of these trees. But she's not going to look anymore because I shot her because she did that. (laughs) (laughs) But um, anyway, that was the last doe that Bull ever found, interestingly enough. But we're going to get out of here, Don. I need one more favor from you. We're going to get out of here. Thank you all for listening to the Hunting Land Man podcast uh, brought to you by Southern Ag Credit. We'll be on here in about another two weeks. Don, thank you for coming on. We learned a lot. Go put your lime out, get your soil right, and get you some summer food plots. And uh, if you need anything else, Don can definitely help you with it. Don, hit that little blue button on the top right over there for us, and we're going to end this thing. There you go. Thank you. Glad to be here. Hey, thank you for listening to the Hunting Land Man podcast. If you will, take a moment. Give us a five-star written review, guys. This really helps us out. And if you know anybody you think will be interested in this podcast, please share it with them.